Welcome back to the Sports Docs Podcast with Dr. Ashley Bassett and Dr. Katherine Logan. On each episode, we chat about the most recent developments in sports medicine with experts from around the country. In this episode, we're going to continue our discussion with Dr. Clayton Nelly and focus on an overall treatment algorithm to approach different types of cartilage lesions and select the optimal surgical treatment for various cases. We start with a discussion of osteochondral lesions in the pediatric population. Will Bugby and his team at Scripps Clinic in California authored a case series entitled Osteochondral Allograft Transplantation of the Knee in the Pediatric and Adolescent Population. They reported 90% graft survivorship at 10 years post-op. Of the five grafts that failed, four successfully underwent a salvage surgery with another osteochondral allograft. 88% of the knees were rated as good to excellent with an 89% satisfaction rate. The authors deemed OCA to be a safe and effective procedure for pediatric patients with large osteochondral defects. Then, from the December 2021 issue of Cartilage, we discussed the comprehensive review article by Andres Gamal and colleagues titled, Algorithm for Treatment of Focal Cartilage Defects of the Knee, Classic and New Procedures. This paper nicely details a treatment approach based on cartilage lesion size, location, and presence of underlying bone involvement. We finish up our conversation with a focus on rehab and returning to play after cartilage restoration procedures. The last article we reference is a systematic review published in AJSM 2009 titled Return to Sports Participation After Articular Cartilage Repair in the Knee. Kai Mithoffer et al. reported an overall return to sports rate of 73%, with the highest return rates following OATS. Yet, the highest durability to continue playing at the pre-injury level of play was following ACI at 96%. There was numerous factors that impacted an athlete's ability to return to sport. Younger patients, those with pure cartilage lesions rather than osteochondral lesions, duration of symptoms less than 12 months pre-op, smaller lesions under 2 centimeters, lesion location at the lateral femoral condyle, No prior surgeries and no concomitant procedures were also associated with increased return to play. And we're back. So now that we've reviewed the four main surgical techniques for cartilage restoration, or I guess the four that we're going to touch on, there's there's a plethora, but microfracture, OATS, OCA, Macy, we're going to focus on selecting the optimal treatment for different clinical scenarios, which we've kind of been doing throughout, but we want to talk about specifics in terms of lesion size, breakdown, location, things like that. So the paper by Andres Gamal and his team nicely outlines an algorithm for approaching different types of cartilage lesions. For lesions with substantial bone loss, as we said, osteochondral autograph or allograph transfer is the treatment of choice depending on the size. But for lesions without bone involvement, specifically those in that middle range of size, two to four centimeters, there can be a wide variety of options to choose from. So let's start with maybe a small cartilage lesion under two centimeters, no bone loss. How are you treating that? And does it differ tibiofemoral versus patellofemoral? Great question. So I think some of it depends on the age of the patient, their activity level too, as you mentioned, some of these uh, patient factors um, and, and then expectations. If it's, if it's a small um, condylar um, lesion um, and, a, and a higher activity level or higher demand patient, then I'm 
potentially going to be somewhat more aggressive at looking at going straight to an osteochondral autograft and and um, replacing that uh, that damaged area of cartilage. If it's a relatively sedentary patient or someone who maybe maybe works a desk job and just happened to have a traumatic injury um, and then and, and doesn't isn't super active or doesn't have high expectations, I, I may just do a, a scope and a debridement um, and, and a chondroplasty or a debridement um, and then see how they do. Um, um, with the expectation that if, for, you know, it breaks down or they, or they don't do very well long-term, then we can always come back and, and do another larger cartilage restoration procedure, whether that be an oats at that time, or whether that be an allograft later at that time too, I think. So, uh, so I think part of it is, is the size of the defect, but you, you mentioned small. Um, um, so then it goes to patient expectations and, and patient, um, kind of age and, and that sort of thing. And then, and then from location, patellofemoral, I'm a little bit more inclined to, to, do initial debridement um, and not necessarily be as aggressive as cartilage restoration right away because sometimes it there's a lot of other factors involved with patellofemoral, right? So it, was it because of a dis, patellar dislocation and now they've got patellar instability or do they have malalignment or patellofemoral, um, coronal plane malalignment? It just seems like a lot of times with patellofemoral articular cartilage lesions or defects, there's even more factors at play, concurrent factors or concomitant things that you may need to address potentially. And so um, it, it may be an initial scope and debridement that's then coming back to doing cartilage in the second stage, um, plus or minus, you know, patellar uh, stability procedure or an osteotomy or things like that. I think even, you know, Clay, with the patella femoral, like sometimes it's even simpler, like where they have, you know, some mechanical type symptoms, like maybe, you know, they have some cartilage, like chondral flaps or, you know, things that are sort of catching. And then their patellofemoral problem is really just related to, you know, maltracking, lateral dominance, and like poor glute activation, kind of all things that are fixable, but they still have that mechanical symptom. And so you're like, okay, mm -hmm. if I can kind of take away this mechanical symptom, but then you got to hit the rehab hard, you know, you're right that like, oftentimes you can get away with just a debridement chondroplasty type thing. Um, and, you know, you always have the other procedures in your back pocket if you need it, but sometimes they're not progressing in physical therapy because they sort of like keep sticking in that cycle of like, I'm trying to do my PT, but I keep getting these mild effusions and then my quad shuts down. And then, you know, they kind of um, stay in that cycle for a little while. Yeah, those are, those um, are great points. The other, you know, kind of procedures that exist that are a little bit, you know, less aggressive, um, like biocartilage, cartiform, um, what, you know, what is those, your sort of vision of the place for those? And then also, you know, I always kind of remember those are quite expensive procedures and they're not even always approved. So, you know, how do you kind of fit all those in? Yeah, that's a great question. I've, I've done a lot of them, um, just from having an interest in the field, uh, you know, and, and we're always trying to push things forward or try and see if we can find something that's maybe better. Uh, for some of those ones that you just mentioned, um, whether it be micronized cartilage or micronized allograft like biocartilage or cryopreserved allograft, which is what cartiform is, um, or particulated juvenile articular cartilage, what we call PJAC, um, or what people, uh, um, um, and, you know, what, there's, there's all these different things as, as you mentioned. Um, and so, um, that are potential options. The, the, the reason that all those kind of come about is, is because all of those ones that we just mentioned can be done a single stage, which is potentially hugely beneficial versus some of the other things that we've talked about, such as Macy or osteochondral allograft, which are typically two stage procedures at minimum. 
Um, so, you know, the, the huge benefit of being able to do it, go in and then do a cartilage procedure right then and there um, is, is hugely appealing to all of us. The difficulty is, first and foremost, as you mentioned, Catherine, they don't usually get approved by insurance or it's very hard to get them approved by insurance. Uh, for, for cartiform and biocartilage, you can get a pre-approval if you code it as an osteochondral allograft transplant. Um, but it's, you know, it's, that's, you know, you start getting into the gray area a little bit, um, when you do that, um, and that sort of thing. Uh, but even then sometimes it's hard to get approved. And then, and then number two, um, you know, some of the, there's just not as many long-term outcome studies and not as many good clinical studies for some of those things, um, as we have for, for Macy or for osteochondrolograph, you know, we have very good long-term longitudinal 10, 15, even 20 year studies in some cases, um, with that. And so I think, um, you know, I think all those things um, are interesting. Um, and I, like I said, I've done a lot of them, but um, uh, I've tended to, I uh, don't regularly do many of those uh, often. It's kind of the, as Ashley stated before, the four, the big four that we kind of talked to, those are probably my bread and butter for, I would say, gosh, nine, 95% of the cases or more probably uh, for cartilage procedures that I do, um, just for all the reasons that I just mentioned. So recap, um, just so it's all straight for everyone listening. So what then, what are you plugging in or, you know, what are you doing for that two to four centimeter squared size, no bone loss, and then four centimeter, you know, larger than that, no bone loss? Yeah, uh, two to four centimeters bone loss is pretty much a go to straight to OCA. No bone loss if it's patellofemoral. I, I like Macy a lot and even in some condylar um areas. Uh, I think Macy's still nice, especially if you've got maybe a, um, multiple areas to cover, uh, multiple defects to cover, or both combined, like say trochlear and condylar. Um, but, uh, but I think OCA is still a workhorse, especially if you, if there is bone loss and, and larger than four centimeters, you can use it. You could use either a Macy if it's still a surface procedure, especially if it's telephermal, you can even do it bipolar now, but uh, but for me, I, I'm sorry, I, again, towards want to go toward more towards a structural graft. So that's going to be an graft, just because I want to have um, as much structural support for that amount of allograft articular cartilage um, as possible. And you People kind of have described. It. Go on. Yeah, go ahead, Ashley. Sorry. No, no, you were going to say something else before I shift to a different a different area. So finish up what you were going to say. Well, I was just going to say. Yeah, I was going to say, you can, you can do what's called the sandwich technique um, with Macy, even if there is bone loss, um, where, you, where you use two grafts on back of each other and you bone graft the base of the, um, the, base of the articular, uh, or the base of the defect and, and then put the Macy on top of each other in a, in a quote-unquote sandwich. Um, um, and um, uh, Tom Minus, who's done a ton of uh, Macy, um, it was in New York now, it was in Florida, um, uses that almost exclusively and has some pretty published and pretty good results for that. But to me, um, I like a little bit more of a structural graft, especially if there's significant bony involvement. And so I think the osteochondral graft provides that a little bit better. Definitely. And I was just going to say, you touched upon bipolar lesions. You did talk about that. So um, we know they don't have as good outcomes as unipolar lesions, but how are you approaching a bipolar lesion? Yeah, so I think uh, you know there's some data that says that that you can that you can utilize Macy for that, um, and I've done it in a couple cases in the patellofemoral joint. Um, I think you know as we've, as we've talked to you a lot of the patellofemoral joints, just really a kind of a unique animal versus condylar grafts or even tibiofemoral bipolar lesions. Um, 
just because the contact forces and the, the factors at play and the, the tracking of the patella, as Catherine mentioned earlier, there's so many more dynamic variables than the tibial femoral joint. Um, um, but generally speaking, I would say if it's a, if it's a bipolar lesion patellofemoral, I again like to go to osteochondral allograft just because I think it has, it's a little bit more, has a little bit more robust structural integrity. And we actually actually getting ready to publish on a pretty large series of our bipolar graphs, in the patellofemoral joint with, with going straight to OCA, um, um, that we presented at one of our recent meetings. So, and they, and they do pretty well, um, it's short-term follow-up, but. But um, um, so I think uh, tibial femoral is the really hard one. Obviously, bipolar tibial femoral is tough for all of us because I don't know that I don't know that anybody has a perfect answer or a great answer for the tibia, especially if there's meniscal loss or meniscal insufficiency. Um, um, you know, and and there's been some some couple of, like techniques shown of people retrograde drilling and putting an oats plug in for through the tibia, which is which I tried once and is easier than or is harder than you might even think. Um, and, uh, oh, yeah. yeah, and people doing <laughs> micro fracture there. <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> um, it's interesting though, but, um, uh, biocartilage, you know, people put there or basically some sort of micro fracture plus whether that's, you know, be a, a biocartilage or prochondrix or any of these kind of, um, putties that you can put there. So people have tried a lot of different things, yeah. but the, the tibia is, tibia is a hard one for bipolar. All right, we are going to um, finish up with my, my favorite topic, um, which is like return to play, um, rehab discussion, all that sort of stuff. I always feel like that. I say to every patient when I consent them, no matter what the procedure, it's like surgery is just half, you know, um, all like the rehab kind of stuff is equally as important. Um, so um, we'll finish up with those types of things. So what is your post-op weight-bearing and range of motion protocol look um, look like. Um, so we'll work first specifically for the tibiofemoral cartilage restoration procedures. Yeah. So don't worry about that. Yeah, yeah. Right. Good. Thanks. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, so I think again, size of the size of the defect matters. And, and I think one of the important things when we're talking about size of the defect is in the literature, you know, we always quote it as a specific number. Like, is it two centimeters squared? Is it four centimeters squared? which is helpful so that we can, you know, cross-reference these different um, numbers and cross-reference studies against each other. But two centimeters squared, as Ashley mentioned before, in a very small female is a whole different surface area of their condyle than two centimeters squared in one of our six, six offensive linemen, you know, that we treat yeah. here. And so, so I think that's important and that that's not, that's, we don't do a great job of like describing that. It's hard to describe that in the literature. Um, people talk about it, but it's hard to describe. And so, so to some degree, when we talk about size, I think that's important. So again, that goes back to patient factors, like every thing we're talking about here like what are what are the patient factors that are involved and 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 you know is this a two centimeter squared lesion in a gymnast or is it in a football player um yeah. it's very different um but that that being said um uh, tibial femoral or condylar lesion if, if i have a structural graft and it's a smaller graft like an autograft or even a smaller um, cylindrical plug that's a press fit with really good fit um, I'm more aggressive than I used to be. I used to be strict six weeks, sometimes even eight weeks, toe touch or non foot flat, non weight bearing. Um, now some of those lesions outlet start to uh, do partial weight bearing at two to four weeks. Um, if I feel like I have really, really good fit, um, usually get an x-ray at two weeks and make sure that there's not any gapping in the subchondral area. Or there's not any gapping that I can see on plain radiographs. <clears throat> There usually isn't, but if there is, then I'm then I'm a little bit more slower with the weight bearing status, and maybe push them out to the six week mark like we historically used to do. 
for the tibiofemoral uh, area. For Macy um, and tibiofemoral, I'm a little bit slower, again, because it's a surface graft that doesn't have quite that structural support beneath it um, to, to hold it up. And so, so I tend to uh, go a little bit slower with tibiofemoral weight bearing and push that out more towards the kind of traditional uh, six-week mark um, for a surface type of restoration procedure. Yeah. And what about, oh, go ahead, Ashley. Well, I, actually, Catherine, I was just going to ask yours. I know we briefly, when we did our overtime, we yeah. talked about Macy, but for more structural graphs, um, uh, how are you managing like their weight bearing? And I would say, you know, similar to Clay, I think over time and also similar to um, meniscal repairs, I've gotten a little bit more aggressive um, with allowing them to do more. Certainly if it's, you know, an 18 year old boy, maybe I'm telling them non-weight bearing because I know it's not going to be non-weight bearing. Mm -hmm. uh, but I've definitely with these structurals, like I've gotten a little bit more lenient, let's say, instead of aggressive and I'm allowing them um, to start to progress a little bit earlier. And then, you know, just always having, um, you know, a really good discussion about what that means and how to progress. And I think, you know, this is obvious, but always making sure that they're with like a really fantastic therapist. Yeah. So, you know, just sort of matching them with a good therapist that isn't, you know, has, you know, done plenty of cartilage rehab work and really understands. Yeah, I think that's key. I, I'm the odd duck. I just, uh, I don't trust anyone. I do non-weight bearing for, for six weeks because I just think they're all going to do something stupid. <laughs> and sorry, patients that are listening. But uh, I do think eventually, yes, the more structural things you can trust them to bear a little bit more weight. I just, I worry about, I worry about them a lot. Patellofemoral, like we talked about um, on our overtime episode that I do allow earlier weight bearing with the brace locked so that they can feel like they're doing, doing something. Um, and I restrict their motion uh, a little bit more patellofemoral, but I still haven't gotten uh, ballsy enough to to let people weight bear early after after any cartilage for tibiofemoral. But may maybe I'll get there like meniscus. Yeah. yeah what you brought sure. up a great point though. What, um, do you, what do both of you do for, uh, bracing wise after cartilage procedures? So How I do a brace. Yeah. So I, um, so for tibiofemoral there, um, they're non-weight bearing for typically non-weight bearing for typically four weeks, and then partial weight bearing thereafter to be full weight bearing at six weeks. I have them have the brace locked when ambulating at all times, unlocked zero to 90 for the first four weeks. And then I progress to 120 there thereafter. Um, so then once they're full weight bearing at six, I unlock the brace. They can wean out of the brace around eight weeks. Patellofemoral, I start partial weight bearing after about two weeks um, and then progress to full by four with the brace locked in extension. Then I start to unlock the brace. And for uh, I keep the brace similar amount of time, about six weeks until they're ambulating with it unlocked with no difficulty. Um, and I just hold their motion. Um, I do like zero to 45 and then zero to 90 so as not to just stress the patellofemoral joint. Um, and so they're, they're typically in the brace for about eight weeks. Yeah, it's interesting. It's something I, I, I kind of want to, I wanted, we wanted to look at a little bit. I mean, it, to some degree, we, I think we brace patients just to, like Ashley said, because um, maybe truthfully, we're not quite sure. We don't really trust them to do the true non-weight bearing or we brace them to kind of protect ourselves or give ourselves some peace of mind. Because, mm -hmm. um, you know, with, with a lot of cartilage procedures, especially if it's pretty stable and stuff, um, especially for what we're talking, we're just talking about like a condyl or graft that's very stable. 
Um, you know, I don't know that we necessarily need to put them in a big brace, but we do de- we do need to get them moving right away. Um, we all know cartilage likes motion and the joint likes motion. And so, so I don't know. So, I mean, I'm the same as you guys. I brace them until six or eight weeks because that's what we do. And because maybe it gives us a lot more or a little more, a lot more peace of mind. Um, but I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I think maybe a more low profile brace and then even maybe transitioning to even less sooner, um, maybe a possibility or maybe the right way to go. Yeah, I think so too. And I think the other part about bracing is like, you know, it's more of a signal to the outside world. Like, so, you know, for example, um, even when I'm moving somebody out of their like initial post-op brace for an ACL, I'm always like, Hey, you know, you can start to ditch that guy, but you know, keep it in your car. Like, so the example I always give people in Denver is like, if you're going to Red Rocks, like to see a (laughs) concert, just put it on, you know, just like, you know, it just keeps people away from you. Or maybe like, if somebody, you know, if you do take a dive down one of those steps, like you've got a little extra something on to protect you. But like, so sometimes it's more about the people around you and kind of giving you a little bubble. Yeah, no, I mean, you're, you're pointed at 100% that like full disclosure, I mean, everybody gets up on the podium now and obviously says, oh, you don't need to brace your ACLs if it's an isolated ACL, like it, the studies show it makes no difference. Don't put up, everybody says, oh, I don't put a brace on any of my ACLs. I still brace my ACLs, even my isolated ACLs, if I'm being completely honest. And But I, what I tell them is when you're at home, take it off. And when you're at home and yeah. you're just walking around or you're doing your exercise at home or when you're in your PT sessions with the PT, don't wear it. I don't want you to wear it at all. I want you to move. But anytime you're out in public or in between going from PT to Walmart and Walmart to home, mm. put the brace on just because I don't trust any other people. Or like Just like you said, Catherine. So uh, I think that's a yeah. great point. Um, yeah. And you had mentioned motion, uh, Clay. I know Catherine stands on this. Do you do CPM postoperatively for your car yeah. procedures? I try to, you know, like everything else we've kind of been talking about. Sometimes it's not, it's not always easy to get approved. Um, um, but yeah, I, I usually do CPM um, for every one of my cartilage patients if we can. Yeah, same. Good. We're, we're in agreement. <laughs> All right. Like All right. What about um, how do you start impact return to run? You know, how do you make those decisions? Is it time-based? Is it criterion? How do you do that? Or yeah. x-ray? Yeah. Yeah, that's great. And that's why that's why I was really interested to hear Ashley's experience and, and look forward to learning more from Ashley about that with, with getting MRIs at a lot of the patients at six months, like she was saying, because um, uh, we haven't done that, like, necessarily, unless maybe they're a study patient or something like that, but we haven't made that as a strict protocol for every cartilage patient, but maybe we should, um, um, just if nothing else, it'd be interesting to know. Um, so it's usually a combination of radiographic and clinical. So do get x-rays on all of those patients. Um, and, um, and then, and then, um, and if they have good graphs incorporation in there and clinically they're doing very well, I don't let any of them, um, run never before three months. And usually it's more for four to five months, quite honestly. Um, and I don't let any of them do any sort of like really high impact stuff before six months. And I usually tell most of them, especially if it's larger graphs or, um, um, the surface procedure, like I usually tell most of them it's going to be nine to 12 months. Um, is what I, is what I kind of just give them, give them ahead of time. And if it's earlier than that, then everybody's happy and that's awesome. But I tell most of my cartilage patients that they can, they should expect nine to 12 months before they're going, certainly going back to sport, but even going back to like high level or high impact or even construction jobs up and down, uh, on it a lot. Um, and so, but, but, but quick answer to your question is for return to sport or return to work, uh, combination radiographic and clinical. Yeah. 
I agree. And I think you hit the nail on the head with setting expectations preoperatively. I know Catherine and I have talked at length that we do the same for ACLs nine months now, right? Because we know our data that the whole six months is just too early. Even if you pass that return to play test, you're not ready. And so I think that nine to 12 is is perfect, especially for a surface procedure like you talked about that doesn't have that structural backing. Um, I, I similarly, I do get MRIs like I talked about earlier and all of my, especially the plugs. And I look for good graft integration, making sure that the surface is uh, nice and aligned, good border integration before I clear them for impact. No effusion is another thing I look for before I clear them for impact. And then we just do a running progression and we assess how they, how they tolerate that. And then I use a similar return to play for a test, uh, Catherine and Clay, I'm sure you use as well too, similar to the ACL, but just to assess their biomechanics to make sure they're not at increased risk for any other meniscal ligamentous injury. Yeah. yeah. Do you do something similar, Catherine, in terms of your return to play? I know you have like a much, you started doing like core assessments and clinic and things like that. Do you do like a similar return to play for your cartilage procedures that you do for like your ligament reconstructions? It's pretty similar in the sense that, um, so Clay, in my clinic, I have um, like biomotion equipment, um, force plates, yeah. a bunch of different sort of like testing utility kind of things that's like in clinic, not part of like research. So um, basically, I start testing, I start integration of testing at like six to eight weeks on most knee procedures. Yeah. And that six to eight week test is usually just force plate stand squats, simple. Um, but just to sort of get in there, like kind of um, rewiring, if you may, just to like, hey, this is what 50-50 symmetry feels like in stance or like a low squat. And then like at each interval that they follow up, there's added testing. So, um, you know, we start to add in lunges, single leg squats, counter movement jumps, drop jumps, you know, hops, all that kind of stuff, and then progress all the way to their final testing at 12 months. I always invite people to come back in a year and a half and two years. And then it's all, it's like 50, 50 <laughs> people are like, I'm so done with this. I feel great. Let me, <laughs> don't me. Yeah. But, um, but anyway, I kind of do it very similar. And Ashley knows I also do like some core stuff. Um, just, I think, especially for women, you know, it's a large part of my practice. You get these sort of young females and who really want to fall to dynamic valgus anyway. Um, so just like making sure their glute activation, their core, you know, all that stuff is engaging, but yeah. So I would say I'm very like criterion based as opposed to time-based, but I don't even like consider letting them return to stuff until like sport, like skiing, snowboarding kind of stuff till nine months. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I love that. We use force plate technology stuff too. We use motion capture technology and some of our higher level athletes or, or our higher level weekend warriors even too, right. And stuff too. And so, and it's, I love that type of stuff because you can show them the dynamic valgus, right. Especially with some of the motion capture stuff. And, and, um, and so you can really kind of say, you can show them say, you know, this is, you're not ready yet because you, you can't, you can't be doing this. Like, and, and I think uh, the one of the, that's part of the, one of the reasons I've, maybe gone a little, got a little bit more aggressive with earlier weight bearing a little bit earlier motion than I used to, because uh, I think maybe they lose a little bit of less of their quad or they have a little bit less quad atrophy early on and some of that sort of thing. And some of their hip abductor strength and stuff. And, and, you know, as Catherine mentioned, you know, core strength and things, they can work on those things. Um, but, but they don't usually until they are allowed to do more or until they're allowed to do more activity with their legs. And so, um, so I think hopefully by maybe letting them, do a little bit more a little bit earlier on that that maybe mitigates some of that um but then i you know but then i still tell them it's going to be <laughs> a, a while till they come back anyway so <laughs> yeah 
So we put them through this whole rehab and we do a return to play test. But the interesting question is how many actually return to play. So our last paper, Kai Mithoffer's paper, reported that about 73% of patients were able to return and the highest rates were following the OATS procedure at 91%, which I felt like was an amazing rate. However, only 52% of patients who underwent microfracture or OATS were able to continue playing at their pre-injury level of play, which is not as good. Um, and they found that the ACI, so it wasn't Macy in that study, is ACI, um, had the best durability in terms of, I think it was 96% of patients who returned to play were able to keep doing so. So what should we take away from this for our high-level weekend warriors, like you said, or our professional athletes, even though it's a two-stage procedure and a longer recovery and return to play? Should we be pushing more people to Macy because of this? Um, how should we be counseling our patients to this? Yeah, I think that maybe the first takeaway is 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 that it's a little bit sobering. This the second part of it um, that, that you mentioned for the the level of return to play. So even though you know seventy three percent, which is pretty consistent with other studies, and even consistent with ACL and meniscus surgery literature of return to play, you know seventy five, eighty percent, eighty five percent, that sort of thing, um, and that's what everybody quotes, which is good. But the level of return to play, especially for what you talked about, whether it be the the high level weekend warrior, or especially our our you know, elite athletes, the level of return to play is what matters the most to them. And, mm -hmm. and, uh, unfortunately we're not, we're not as good as we think we are, or maybe as we hope we, we would be with that a lot of times, because, uh, those numbers are, are not nearly as good. And that's even consistent with the ACL literature, right? Like the moon study group, you know, some of the, some of the stuff shows that, you know, 30, 40% like return to the same level of play after ACL surgery in some cases or in some subsets. And so that's, that's kind of sobering for us as sports medicine surgeons, right? Because we like to tell everyone that they have like a 98% chance of getting back to their sport and they're going to do awesome and do great. And we certainly hope that they do, but uh, the literature would tell us that's not the case, no matter, no matter how good everyone is. And so I think the, the initial takeaway is it's a little bit sobering and we just, and we have to continue to keep trying to get better and do better um, to the second part of your question. Should we be going more towards, uh, ACI or, or now that we have, you know, the, uh, the third and now fourth generation and we have Macy, which is even kind of more robust. Um, I don't know, not necessarily. Again, I think it's, I think you still have to kind of boil it down. There's so many options available out there and there's so many, you know, cartilage can get so far into the weeds that I think, um, we're, what we're trying to say is we're trying to boil it down to a relatively straightforward algorithm. And I think you still have to follow, or at least for me, I still want to follow that algorithm based on patient age, patient sex, patient activity level, patient expectations, lesion location, lesion size. And then it just goes down that pathway one or the other based on each one of those things um, as it's set out. Uh, this particular study um, was a little bit before there was more data on osteochondral allograft in athletes available. You know, since this, this study, Brian Cole has published, I think, two different studies on his data, um, one in NBA players um, and then one just in all comers, high level athletes, whether it be high level weekend warrior, some college athletes, some high level high school athletes, and then a few pros um, with pretty good outcomes and return to play after osteochondral allograft um, as well. And again, the numbers are pretty similar. It's, I think, I think his was like 78% return to play after osteochondral allograft. So, you know, you, we kind of get a little, we're starting to get a little bit of a theme, um, obviously, right? Um, so I think that's another option too. Um, um, but I think the important thing is to take the biggest takeaway is um, pretty good numbers for return to play after these cartilage procedures. So we can tell our patients they have a pretty good chance to return to play there, whether or not they return to their previous level, that's not quite as good. And so we have to lay a little bit of crepe 
um, in that regard, probably. One thing, um, Clay, that I thought about, you know, when I was reading this was if, you know, there's bone involvement, we're doing um, OATS or OCA, you know, have they been putting this procedure off? You know, have they, if they're sort of an elite athlete, like, is this something that they're saying, okay, um, I'm going to get an injection here and there, I'm going to do a ton of rehab, whatever it might be. And then when I'm kind of finally at the end of my career and I think I've maximized, is this now the restoration procedure I'm getting? And that's why we're not going to the same level. Um, you know, I don't know. But I think that's sort of at least in my sort of professional sports experience, that's when they're doing that procedure, not in like the middle, like mid-career, let me see if I can keep going. You know, it's more like, okay, anything but that, what else can I do in the interim? Yeah. And also with yeah. that, waiting that long, they found that duration of symptoms being longer than 12 months and lesion size being larger, you wait longer, your size gets bigger. And then maybe those factors are what's inhibiting people from, you know, returning. So yeah, you raise a very good point. I, I think yeah, it's tempting to just get, do the quickest recovery procedure to get them back out there, telling them it's going to be like over a year between the harvest and the recovery after an ACI or a Macy. I just, I don't see a lot of people jumping on that. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't agree with both those points more, I, especially the higher level athletes. Like if you, yeah, if you try and tell them that they're going to be out for a year and there's no guarantee that they're going to come back to the same level of play after that procedure than they were before, they're going to say, forget it. I'm just going to go play with a swollen knee. Yeah. Like, yeah. and that's just reality, as you guys both stated, for almost the vast majority of professional athletes, college athletes, I mean, even weekend warriors to some extent, you know, and so, uh, so yeah, and so I think that's probably why we don't have a ton of, like, great return to sport data after cartilage procedures, because, you know, there's not a ton of yeah. high-level patients having it done. Right, absolutely. Should we do our fast five now? Yeah. <laughs> so we finished up with hey, you're all yeah, done. we're all done. So we, we usually finish up with, uh, with five questions that are not related in any way to the topics, just like fun questions, just to see um, nice. what you think. So, and they're easy and they're not hard, I promise. Um, so first question in the OR, foot pedal or hand control? What's your preference? 100% hand control. All right. Um, what shoes do you wear in the OR? Boots. I wear, uh, they're like, people call them duck boots or mud boots or waders. Yeah. Same water, same. water resistant boots. Uh, yes, perfect. definitely. Um, favorite OR lounge snack. Um, uh, I mean, it's pretty hard to beat peanut butter and crackers. I know. Um, maybe, we agree. Maybe that takes a point. <laughs> Maybe that takes it all the way back to residency when that was like like a staple of like fifty percent of the meals, maybe. Um, but uh, yeah, no, the the uh, the nursing staff at our uh, surgery center love. There's a cookie place though in town, and they love the cookies that from this one cookie place. So I'll frequently we'll bring we'll get those cookies delivered, and so that's pretty tough. Yeah. To beat, is uh, is is big big chocolate chip cookies, but but uh, it's just the standard the standard peanut butter and cracker is pretty boring, but every orthopedist has lived on it. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. What music do you play in the OR, if any? Depends on the day and depends on the mood. <laughs> um, and so, um, and depends on who's, who's scrubbing with us. And so it could be anything from um, old school country, um, uh, classic country 
um, to uh, 90s alternative, to uh, 80s and 90s rock, to hip hop barbecue. Nice. Hip hop barbecue. That's been our go-to lately. Yeah. I used to be more of like an 80s rock type person. And then one day we had hip hop. I, I basically usually just say like, I want something more upbeat. Mm-hmm. Like I, I don't want to be tired or whatever. Um, oh, did you see that study that came out last month that was about um, efficient? I believe it was like an efficiency in the OR um, and the music you listen to. No way. I did not see that. <laughs> it was like, it was like and ACDC. It was like ACDC. It was like yeah. ACDC. They specifically, pointed, they specifically pointed out ACDC, which I think is hilarious. But I also find annoying because my fellowship you know. director played nothing but ACDC every single yeah. day. I like ACDC, but you know, like anything, it gets old after a while. No, my uh, my main, yeah. so I usually have two rooms, but like I always have the same scrub tech and same scrub nurse in, in each of the rooms. And in one of the rooms, the scrub nurse loves hip hop barbecue. So that's usually what we play for her. In the other room, the scrub nurse, she's a little bit uh, older. Um, she loves like 90s alternative, like Pearl Jam, like Counting Crows, and like and I love that too. So we play that. But my one of my AT one of my ATCs like her loves Maroon Five, and so it's like on her day on her day to pick the music, it's Maroon Five all the time. So so you know so we go all over the place. So all right, we have one more question yes. for you. So what is your favorite surgery? Osteoconor allograft transplant. You're not just saying that because of this episode. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not. It's it's on point. I, I, I don't know. It's uh, I don't know. I, I I love I love any surgery where you like where it seems like you can immediately notice a difference visually, yeah. you know, of what it, how bad it was, and then yeah. how much better it is like immediately after you've done something, and um, you know, they they still you never know how they're going to end up or how they're going to go, but at least at time zero, you feel like something is way better than what it was when you came into the operating room, and and uh, and I love, obviously love cartilage, as you guys know, so so uh, that fits fits the bill with both those. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Sports Docs. We hope you enjoyed this discussion as much as we did. Make sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts to stay up to date on all things sports medicine. If you like what you hear, please consider leaving us a review. You can also reach us by email at thesportsdocspod at gmail.com or find us on Instagram at thesportsdocspod. We love your feedback. Stay fit, friends.